Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm Ted Cupper. I'm John Perry. And today we're asking the question, what is the future of virtual reality? So today we're here with another guest, uh, Jason Gans, who I know originally as a moderator on the Futurology subreddit and as a frequent co-host on the Futurology podcast, which is another great podcast you should listen to. Uh, he describes himself as a hardcore futurist and tech obsessive who got his start two years ago interning for the Millennium Project. We're talking to him today because he's super interested in virtual reality in particular. He's working on a VR startup called Agora and is a co-organizer for the Washington, D.C. virtual reality meetup. So, uh, Jason, welcome to the show. Yeah, welcome. Hi, guys. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I'm a more recent convert to the show. I started listening about two weeks ago, but I think I've blown through about half of your episodes since then. It's great <laughs> stuff. That's a lot of hours. Well, thanks for listening to that. <laughs> I have a long commute. <laughs> yeah, that's how I got into podcasts, um, <laughs> is driving way too much. Um, you know, maybe when we have self-driving cars, I can spend that time reading. But for now, it's, <laughs> it's podcasts all the way. Um so anyways, uh, we're going to talk about VR tech, and it seems like the place to start is the present before we get off into weird, crazy, speculative territory. So why don't you kind of start us off, Jason, by telling us a little bit about what the current state of VR technology is? I assume you've spent maybe more time trying this than we have. Um, what What's like the most exciting technology out there? Obviously, Oculus Rift is the thing that has the most hype around it. Have you had a chance to try that? And Yeah. So the Oculus Rift is the one that has the most hype around it, and that's for a pretty fantastic reason. It's because it really is incredible. It's a great experience. So I don't know if you guys know about the kind of progression of hardware that they've had. They started off uh, about a year and a half ago with their first development kit. It's called the DK1, and that was uh, it was a good virtual reality experience, but you could tell that like it wasn't consumer ready yet. You put it on, and it was pretty pretty blurry. And the worst thing for me is the motion sickness. I would put it on, and I would be doing something like a roller coaster, and then five minutes later, I'd have to rip it off my head, and I would just be dying. So since then, they've uh, come out with the development kit 2, which has fixed a lot of those problems. It, um, there's much lower latency, and latency is one of the biggest things that you want to get rid of in virtual reality. And it's also much better at tracking you. So as I'm moving my head around in the virtual world, I actually can see that. So if I'm examining, say, like a molecule on my desk, I can, I can really move my head all around it and peer into it. And it's a fantastic, fantastic experience. So do you have access to one of these development kits yourself that's, that's yours or that's your company's? Yeah, so uh, we, we've got a DK2 and uh, we've got a couple in the company actually. And so we, uh, we spend a lot of time with it in Agora trying to tweak it. But also there's all sorts of cool stuff that you can do. You can be like flying spaceships around or one of my favorites is you can uh, go into the Matrix and relive a lot of the scenes from that, which is just super cool. When I was reading about the Oculus uh, and just virtual reality in general, the, a term that gets thrown around a lot is this concept of presence, which I guess describes the sort of experience of VR of kind of actually being tricked into feeling like you're there. Uh, do you feel like you're achieving that with this second development kit and some of the apps that you're running on it? Or do you feel like it's still not quite there? It's actually, it, for, for me, it's not quite there. So the thing about presence is presence is a really interesting phenomenon, and it's the reason that virtual reality is going to be so important. So what presence is, is 
when your brain is tricked on a really low and fundamental level into feeling like you're in a different place. So people talk a lot today about immersion. You can say a video game is really immersive, immersive when it pulls you into the storyline. But the thing about immersion is you are maybe like, you have some tunnel vision, but you still, you know where you are. There's no point where I'm playing Gears of War and I think that I'm in the Gears of War universe. But with a sufficiently advanced virtual reality headset, what it can do is it can trick the parts of your brain that are kind of like on the subconscious that you don't even realize that you're looking for these things. But when you hit these uh, certain benchmarks, like a wide enough field of view, a high enough resolution, a high enough refresh rate, something in your brain just clicks. And all of a sudden, like if you look out and you look over a ledge, you're like, oh, wow, like I might fall there. And it's like, it's the part of your brain that you don't have any control over. And so I haven't really hit that on the DK2. I would say it's more immersive than presence-inducing, but they have this new uh, a new prototype that they demoed at their recent Oculus Connect conference. It's called the uh, Crescent Bay, and that actually does hit all of the benchmarks that are required for presence. And uh, my, my other co-organizer at DCVR, he tried it, and he said it's absolutely incredible, and it totally did induce presence. And the presence varies a lot from person to person, right? So like, you know, my threshold for achieving this would be maybe different from some other persons. Is that true? Oh, yeah. It's a very ephemeral thing. And it's not just from person to person, but it's from experience to experience. Right. It probably is possible to create a demo in the DK2 that will induce presence for a lot of people. And there are some demos that have no chance of ever giving you presence. And so it's, it's this very much it's a combination of software and hardware and whatever particular parts of your brain make you tick that you have to hit to get it. So it's really tricky, but uh, they, they say it's like magic when it clicks. And the people that you've heard that have done it, there's a reason Facebook bought Oculus for $2 billion. It's because this technology, it's really, it's revolutionary. It's going to change the world. So I don't know if you know this, John, but uh, I've actually used the Oculus Rift. I, um, I used to think a version of the DK1. That oh, was, did you? But it was a very uh, sparse prototype that somebody was working on, so I didn't really have much of an experience. But what did oh, you really? try? Oh, I had uh, access to a, a second generation one. My friend has one, and uh, I uh, tried it out, and I did the spaceship thing, and I did the uh, the snow demo. It's Yeah, if for like a fleeting second, it will occasionally induce this crazy feeling of like, I don't know if you really believe it's real, but you react like you're, you like get you a little dodge something if it was coming. Exactly. At you. you get, you, you dodge for a snowball or something, even though you kind of intellectually know that you don't need yeah, to. You, you always know that like you're yeah. in a virtual experience. Well, but you want part of, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. This is not, <laughs> it's not like the matrix that erases your memories and makes you or anything, but it does <laughs> give you a little bit, of a mm. feeling of like responsive reality or something. I don't know. This this term presence makes sense to me in 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 that respect. Yeah, and really right now it's all about just seeing the potential. You guys right. of course are intimately familiar with exponential tech and Moore's law. So when you see something that is pretty good right now and you know that it's going to be following the exponential curve for the next 10, 15, 20 years, you can see why that's going to be such a powerful factor in the world. Right, right. I mean, uh, one of the most interesting things about Oculus, right, is that it's largely based on commodity tech, you know, cell phone screens and... Uh, yeah, the they call the it uh, the peace dividend of the smartphone war is the screen because, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a pretty funny thing because uh, Apple and Google were just spending just billions and billions of dollars to get these cheap screens out and now we're all benefiting from 
just this ridiculous, incredible tech that we have in our hands for super cheap. Right. Let's talk about that a little bit, like how it uses the cell phone screens, right? Because to achieve the wide field of vision, what it actually does, right, is takes a fairly small screen and then magnifies it. Is that correct? Is that how? Yeah. So, so it takes, uh, it, you can use pretty much any modern smartphone to experience virtual reality. What it does is uh, it splits it down the middle. And then so it dis- displays uh, two images in stereo because, you know, that's how your eyes see. It's uh, two 2D images that your brain kind of like pre-processes together into seeing a 3D image. So it takes those and you put a, uh, a lens in front of those and it, it kind of distorts it and magnifies it and makes it look like it's a real experience. And it's pretty crazy. Are you guys familiar with uh, Google Cardboard? Yeah, let's talk about that, though, for the benefit of our listeners. Absolutely. So Google Cardboard is uh, Google released a bunch of schematics that literally using cardboard and some uh, some plastic lenses you can buy off the Internet for I think like two or three dollars, you can create a pretty cool virtual reality experience. It's obviously not like the same super intense high fidelity thing that you'd get on a DK2 with a gaming rig, but it's still enough for you to be able to be like, oh, okay, like I see where this is going. Yeah, that's really cool. I'm excited about that because uh, one of the phones that it fits is my phone, <laughs> so I could do it. Uh, and I guess there's a company called uh, Dodo Box that's out that's um, selling like a pre-cut version with the lenses for I think 25 bucks or something, pretty cheap. Yeah, I bought one for 20. That seems like worth 20 dollars to me. It's maybe not groundbreaking or anything, but it's uh, such a tiny price to experience something pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And there's actually, um, there's some cool content for it. One of the companies that I think we were going to get into later, who is Jaunt, that makes 360 cinema, they actually just released their first publicly available uh, cinema experience. It's a Paul McCartney concert that you can experience with the Google Cardboard. It's supposed to be pretty sick. That sounds pretty cool to me. Right. So for that platform, right, it seems like probably a lot of the first generation content is going to be more like traditional media, right, that's been ported to this more virtual like experience i think it's gonna be traditional experiences like a concert something you would normally want to do live i mean obviously they make concert films but they're kind of unsatisfying nobody likes them (laughs) i I guess i was reading a lot about uh you know like just basically porting you know like panoramic videos and other types of medium Mm. that you can you can observe in 2d but that you know actually come to life and work a lot better in 3d right But like there are limitations, right? Like it's not like because you mentioned earlier motion sickness, like you're not going to be able to like move around uh, virtual space at high speeds and feel like you're there with any of these devices, right? It's more like like when you experience that Paul McCartney concert, do you move around or you just kind of like turn your head? I actually I haven't tried that one out yet, but I I would assume that you don't move around for um, for 360 video. The simple reason is because when you're taking a video, if you want to be able, you you really can't move throughout an environment unless you've actually 3D mapped it. So with Jaunt, what they do is they uh, they, they take the camera and they create a video of it, but it's not like a a 3D like mapped video game where then you can go walk around it. It it shows you the environment that's around you. So it is kind of like a panoramic video that oh, yeah. that's then been converted into this like much better form yeah. for for viewing it. Absolutely, but I will say that uh, I I was kind of a jaunt skeptic to be honest. I I like thought it was cool, but then uh, they came to DCVR and tried out their demo and seeing things like uh, BMX BMX bikes in a BMX park just riding all around you or being on the stage at an orchestra. It actually is it's super compelling, guys. <laughs> I, I believe it. I mean, that sounds great on its own. Um, but the more immersive presence stuff is 
add a proof of concept like in in the lab anyways or you mentioned the crescent bay thing oh yeah and the crescent bay i mean that's going to be what the consumer version of the oculus rift is and my money is it coming out out holiday 2015 so it's coming quick and it's gonna be the kind of thing where it's gonna hit the market and people are going to be like wow this is incredible i um I just saw a report that uh, it says that the virtual reality market is supposed to grow by something like 15,000% over the next three years. Of course, that's re- reflecting we, that it's very <laughs> small right now. We, yeah. When you start <laughs> from zero, yeah. <laughs> Definitely true. But still, that's uh, that's a pretty impressive growth. I'm very excited about that. I mean, so I, I mean, it sounds like they have most of the big issues cracked, right? But I know there's like there's got to be obstacles here, right? Oh, to- there's huge obstacles. They, they have most of the obstacles cracked for the visual and not for for the right. bare bones of the visual there right. are so many things that we could um we could talk about their challenges that are yet to overcome there's motion sensing because um so when when you tried out the oculus rift what was the first thing you did after you're like oh this was cool uh you try to look at your hands yeah exactly <laughs> yeah and like you want to to for it to feel real to have real presence you need to feel a sense of embodiment and right now there's nothing that gives you that where you can go look at your hands touch things and that's a big problem and it's going to be interesting to see them try and work it out yeah but haven't they made a lot of progress with that on like the connect uh, sensor front and uh, some of these other systems that just watch your body while you move they've made progress but as far as I am aware, there's nothing that has really cracked it yet. Got it. You know, like you, you can go and I, I think the problem with the Connect is there's uh, too much latency. So yeah, yeah, yeah. it's pretty weird when you're moving your fingers around and they're like trailing a little bit behind where they sh- your brain thinks they should be. Yeah, that mm-hmm. would be very disturbing. I think. Now, now, just to come back to something earlier, like the early apps for this, they're not going to be, you know, for example, like like a first-person shooter where you're running around at high speeds, right? Like because of the motion sickness issues, even with the the best version of this uh, that they have right now, right? You can't Correct. really move around in that way exactly, right? There's going to be more. It's going to be a little more of a passive experience than that. Is that correct? Well, it's not going to be necessarily passive. It's just different challenges. So you're not going to be playing Team Fortress 2. You actually can play Team Fortress 2 in the Rift, and uh, it makes me just horribly, horribly motion sick. But... Uh, there is kind of a loophole, which is games where you're in a cockpit. So where you're driving or racing or flying a spaceship for whatever reason, because uh, your brain, like there's not as much vestibular disconnect as you're flying the ship around because that your body is in the same position it would expect to be if you were actually flying the ship. So you could do things like pull off like a race through Coruscant or something crazy like that. Got it. Okay, so it's just going to be a matter of, of course, like designing for this very unique, strange platform, right? And just like the things that work and the things that don't work probably just need to be hashed out by developers. It's like a fascinating blank slate where the rules are like really different than anything we've ever played with before. And some stuff is going to be incredibly compelling, but if you mess it up, you're going to make people puke. So it's it's quite the line to walk. Right, of course. <laughs> yeah, that's... Uh, it, it makes it almost like a little bit like some of the challenges you get like with bringing like a drug to market or something like like, like almost need to like test on people. And right, like, like, right. Well, it has that level of power of like a drug or like... Well, yeah, I mean, it really does. I think you guys saw the article, uh, the Stephen Kotler, where he said that virtual reality could be legal heroin. Yeah, that's a really interesting idea because uh, obviously if we get better and better at figuring out how to make virtual reality induce different neurotransmitter states, you might be able to come up with uh, quite addictive activities to do in virtual reality. 
Uh, especially, yeah. especially if you have really good sensors giving you great biofeedback so you know exactly how well you're doing and like how much. Yeah, it creates this incredible yeah. feedback loop because, right. okay, so there's two things that I like to think about when we think about virtual reality as a drug. The first is Candy Crush. Do either of you guys play Candy Crush or know someone that plays it? I, I have played it, yeah. I don't, I don't, I didn't fall into addiction with it, but I've certainly been addicted to games before. I, yeah, I have not and played there, there can be these very simple games that start the feedback loops where you need more, plus one, plus one. And you're right, us and your audience are probably more into a different subset of games, but I'm sure we've all fallen into that trap where it's like, I need to get that one more level. I need to get that next item, you know? Sure. So you take that and you combine that with a full body presence experience where as you're doing this, maybe you're rushing down a mountain on a snowboard. And of course, there's challenges as we discussed and things like that. But something where you are completely present in your activity and combining those two together can be a fantastically powerful addictive force. Sure, as anybody who's a, a snowboarder will tell you, <laughs> that's, that, that is extremely addictive, I think. Mm -hmm. And as, as you go out to the limits of improving the tech, it will be able to replicate more and more of the experiences that we can have in the physical world, like becoming like a deadhead, the people that just follow the Grateful Dead around. There are all these lifestyles that are kind of, uh, you're, you're required to live a very certain life to do them. But in virtual reality, you'll be able to like dip your toes into all of these things without having to actually go and follow a band around for your entire life. Sure, sure. And uh, might as well run with this concept of addiction for now. We did an episode a while back on addiction in which we, we made the point that addiction kind of doesn't really exist until you start having consequences. So it's interesting to think about with virtual reality, it seems like the obvious consequence that you would be afraid of is that people would be using the virtual reality too much, right? That they would be ignoring their obligations to the people in their life or to their job. Um, and it seems like this could be compelling enough that... Uh, it would get to that point. Now, of course, some of the promise of virtual reality is to put you into a space with other people, right? And to maybe also improve your productivity on the job or your ability to socialize with other people too, right? So there's like two big extremes of good and bad we could get out of this, right? Yeah, absolutely. Like, I am not in any way arguing against virtual reality. I think it's going to be a fantastic uh, force for not only uh, making people more productive, but making them more educated and being able to socialize. What I want to see is that we use this incredibly powerful technology and we do the right things because it's going to be very easy to get sucked up into virtual candy crush, but there's going to be also all of these crazy new things that we can't even comprehend. I, I think a good example of some, the thing that's closer to what I would like to see is something like Kerbal Space Program, where it's like technically a video game in the same way that uh, Candy Crush is. But when you're playing this game, you're learning how to build rockets. I easily have learned far more about how like the orbital cycle actually works from playing this game than I ever, ever did by reading a book or watching a documentary. So when you can do this kind of thing and you're designing this, in virtual reality, and then you're riding the rocket up with full haptic feedback, that's going to be incredible. And think about what it could do for inspiring kids to get into real life science, for example. Right. It seems like it, the possibilities as an educational tool uh, in particular are huge. Um, but actually, you brought up haptic. So, so why don't we go there and talk about some of the other senses and things that would have to be added to, to really achieve, you know, complete virtual reality in the sense that we all dream of, like, you know, the holodeck and Star Trek or something. Right, because Oculus basically is pulling off, or you know, trying to get as close as they can to pulling off, you know, the 360 degree AV, right. uh, visual uh, immersion and also audio. Right. But uh, and and obviously, there's still challenges there regarding you know motion sickness and so on. 
But uh, what about haptics? Like, what uh, what needs to be done there, and like, what kind of timeline would you expect for that? So haptics are tough. <laughs> They're a really tough technology, and as of right now, it's um, it, it's pretty wide open. So. To get good ha- haptics, first you need a good input device. That's commonly accepted that like before we'll be able to touch objects with our hands, we have to be able to see objects with our hands. That makes sense, right? Sure. So the fact that Oculus hasn't even announced any sort of input solution means that they haven't found a good one because they have said over and over again, we're worth working to find a good input solution. We'll let you know when we found one and there's nothing right now. Now, there are some uh, third-party devices, such as uh, the Magic Leap, which is uh, a little camera device that you could use that tracks your hand pretty well. It's just in a, uh, in a smaller area, so it's only within like a one-foot area that it tracks it well. And then there's um, things like Control VR, which is probably more what you imagined as like suiting up and you like put things on. And I've heard, uh, I've heard pretty good things about Control VR. It, apparently, you can move your hands around. They actually they had a pretty awesome video where they were playing virtual uh, beer pong. <laughs> okay. And, uh, I mean, that requires some, like, a fair amount of, like, dexterousness. So, first, we have to conquer input. And yes. that, that, I say, that, that's, that's a couple years. That's not immediately, but that's also not 10 years. I, I would be surprised if we didn't have that done and solved pretty well within... Three to five years, but then so, yeah, that, but then the the output right is where you're going next, like because that sounds a lot harder. Yeah, a lot harder. So the best thing that I've heard for haptics for glo- gloves are probably going to be the first one that we want to get for that because that enables us to do so much, being able to pick things up and feel them with our hands. Right. And so there's this really interesting pneumatic glove. It's a glove that you put on that you connects to a virtual world. So if I'm in the Rift and I am seeing my microphone that is in front of me like it is now, I can go and at, as the sensors in the computer see like, okay, Jason's hand is colliding with where the microphone is, then the pneumatic tubes stiffen up so it stops my hand from moving anymore, giving me a rough experience of feeling like the microphone is there. Right, so this is a glove that's basically like on a mechanical arm, right? Yeah. That uh, yeah, I've seen I've seen the a video of this. I know what you're talking on about. On a mechanical arm. So it's Yeah, so that's how it's able to like oh, stop you. It's not it. like floating in the air. It's like a glove that's attached to a desktop unit and you put your hand in it and it gives you the feedback of the Got world. Got it. Okay. Yeah, I just wanted to paint that picture for the audience in case oh, they yeah, hadn't absolutely. seen that. But yeah, that this is a really cool device. I've seen this and this seems like something that will quickly be turned to uh, pornographic use. <laughs> <laughs> Well, as with all this stuff. Right. Yeah, as, as it seems like that's the most is. immediate um, marketable use of something like that that I can imagine. That would just terrify me. <laughs> if it finances innovation, then, you know. That's I'm right. For it. It. Yeah, it's good. It's good. Um, I mean, of course, there's there's other senses, too. Like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, smell seems to me like probably lowest on the priority list, but it's sort of an interesting one to speculate about as well. It's going to be really hard to do, isn't it? I mean. Yes and no. Uh, I... I can't make any promises about this, but apparently there's like, I don't know, like six million discrete smells that the nose can actually register. Uh And it can apparently factor a bunch of those through some sort of chemical process. And I'm sure it doesn't work as well as advertised, but even just a a slight bit, I feel like would help, you know, having maybe like, like a hundred different scents that you could have. That That's enough so that when you're in virtual reality and you enter a library, there's like a slight smell of paper or you go into a field and there's a slight smell of grass. Like there, there are enough common scents that I feel like would uh, be able to, um, 
to give you at least a little extra push in that presence induction. Yeah, you could with a relatively small palette, you could potentially add a like a lot subtly to an experience. That makes sense. Um, it's like how they say learning the first hundred words of a language is the most important because then you can get like most of what you're saying across. Is the same thing with scent. I feel like sure. Now, what about like other? We, we talked about gloves, right? And we've obviously talked about the these head mounted displays. But what about, you know, some kind of chair or like these gyroscopes, things that can help with the motion sickness so that you can turn your body when you're turning in this space? Um, what's the Yeah, or like the thing that, that I've actually heard of is the multidirectional treadmills. Apparently yeah. they, they have those. Where, okay. So those are like a, a, a circular treadmill that you can walk in any direction on and they report the information back into the computer so that you know what it knows where you're walking. Now who's working on that stuff? Do we know? Or and Yeah. Are- so there's there's two main companies that are working on that. There's the Omni, which has uh, their omnidirectional treadmill. They they were kind of the first ones I've heard of. And they got they got I think a couple million dollars in investment round. I haven't tried it yet, but we have a uh, we have a member who has and he said it's um he said it's a pretty good experience. It gives you again it's all about the uh, if you can get the idea of it and then know it's going to be improving on the exponential curve, then you can see where it's going. Mm-hmm. And then there's also the uh, the Cyberith Virtualizer. It's just uh, another VR um, uh, omnidirectional treadmill. The interesting thing they have is this kind of like spike that extends above it through the middle, so you can mount your um, mount your Oculus Rift up to that, so that what you can like totally spin around circles through just sixty degrees and not get caught up in any cords. That's cool. What do you think the reason is for all this VR innovation being bottom-up? It's really fascinating. And I think the thing that's driving it the most is that there's like a rabid core of people who are just like dying to see virtual reality become a thing. I don't know if you guys have ever visited the uh, Oculus subreddit on Reddit, but there are people there who are, they're some of the most passionate believers in a technology that I've really ever seen about anything. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's an easy one to get very excited about, right? Especially I mean, if you come from like a gaming background, right? It seems like if you've done like a first-person shooter on a computer, you have a reasonably good idea of why you'd like mm-hmm. VR, mm-hmm. even if you've never seen it or done it. So you start to hear that that's possible, and it's probably very I, compelling. I think it's gaming, but I think it's more. Uh, I think it's more sci-fi. So have you oh, guys really? uh, read or heard of Snow Crash? Of course. Sure. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So Snow Crash. I mean, Snow Crash was what inspired. John Carmack and Michael Abrash and Palmer Lockie and everyone everyone that's doing this kind of read that book and saw the vision of the metaverse and like decided they needed to make that happen. Uh, there, there was a great quote from Michael Abrash where he said like to uh, like that Snow Crash was what like really got him into uh, into virtual reality and Palmer Lockie said that like to a certain kind of nerd creating virtual reality is like the highest moral imperative. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it promises such great freedom. I mean, you know, we talked about uh, transhumanism just in general not that long ago and the concept of, of morphological freedom. And, and I think virtual reality is a type of freedom that goes even beyond that. I mean, it promises, yes, that you could take any form you want, but that you could shape your environment to any form that you want for that as well. Right. And, and include can, as many or as few other people in it as, as you want. And it's, right. it's yeah. so, it, it's it so does. wide it open. It promises total control. And um, I, I'm pretty uh, hardcore transhumanist as well. But the thing about a lot of that is it's slightly further out and we can't really see it forming around us. And 
is if you're outside of the kind of Silicon Valley elite, virtual reality is the closest you're going to get to this real hardcore futuristic tech for at least a couple years. Now, uh, you, you brought up the metaverse. So, like, obviously, one of the promises here, I mean, gaming, yes, but uh, is just having a, you know, interactive social spaces and basically, you know, networking all of these virtual reality experiences together so you can have some sort of alternate uh, universe, uh, maybe where you can just go into a lobby and, and see random strangers that are wherever they are in the world and, and so on and so forth. Like, how long do you think it'll take before we start having that kind of uh, networked experience? Oh, man, uh, not that long. Like, the, so Oculus has stated that their goal is to build the metaverse uh, Zuckerberg said that he wanted to be the first one to get a billion people into an MMO. Like this is this is where they're going. This is where the path is heading. All the signs are trending there, and it's trending there pretty quickly. A billion is a lot of people. So, I I think that that's probably definitely within ten years we'll have ten billion people, uh, a billion people in a uh, a metaverse type simulation. Probably quicker than that. Yeah, that's very exciting. I mean, all this really is. So I, I hope uh, I hope the optimism is warranted. Of course, people have been burned by this stuff in the past, but it really does seem like just a confluence of things. It are really working. does feel like a pretty like special confluence of events. And uh, there's a great quote by Chris Dixon, who's a who's a pretty big deal in and among himself. He's like, it's like I've seen four or five demos that convinced me the world was about to change. It is like the Apple II, Netscape, Google the iPhone, and the Oculus Rift. Like, that's how big of a deal this is. Yeah, that seems about right. I yeah, mean, that's a bold statement, but I believe it, um, for uh, sure. Like, who, you know, whether it's Oculus or whether it's uh, whoever gets to market with something affordable that works first, like, you know... Like, well, that's one worry, because um, as we talked about before with the, uh, the potential for motion sickness and stuff, yeah. people at Oculus are uh, on record uh, warning other VR companies not to, quote-unquote, poison the well of... Because if you release a crappy VR tech, a bunch of people buy it because they're excited, and then every, it makes everyone puke, then VR is dead in the water for another couple of years. Well, that is definitely something you can use in your ad campaign. <laughs> we're Oculus, we're the company that won't make you puke. Hate <laughs> <laughs> yeah. throwing up while you're gaming? Yeah, you, see, you just show a lot of pictures of people not throwing up while they're wearing their Oculus Rift. <laughs> <and> like, <laughs> notice that no one's throwing up now. Right, but as we know... Don't buy the cheap ones. Yeah. I think, you know, the thing is, like, that's interesting, but it's a little bit self-serving, I think, on Oculus's part, because realistically, I mean, look at the cell phone market. There's a, obviously a tremendous amount of cheap, crappy cell phones that get produced, and yeah, but they the don't difference is seem to turn people phone, off iPhones. It's frustrating. When you use bad virtual reality, you feel like you're dying. It's, it's bad. <laughs> yeah. Well, as long as you don't actually die and you, you take it off and you, you get, <laughs> we'll you get better in an hour or so, I think it probably won't kill the technology wholesale. No, but I, I hear what you're saying. I mean, yeah. like, Oculus has enough hype behind it now that if, and I'm, they, I'm sure understand this extremely well. And that's the point of that statement is that if they come to market with something that is not totally pulled together and they get like, a lot of bad reviews of this. Oh sort. no, that could definitely kill that, them, and it could set the whole space back. It could definitely yeah. set the whole thing back, right? Um, so I, I think that is probably a real concern on their part. Although, of course, I'm sure they want to chase competitors out as well. Right? Oh yeah. Right. No, I mean, definitely it's self-serving, but like, I believe them when they say it. Just yeah. because it's self-serving doesn't mean it's wrong. Sure, of course. Uh, those, uh, but those yeah, are... I mean, I just want to like reiterate, like that this this isn't something that like we are hoping will get built. The current Crescent Bay 
is capable of delivering full presence, and the reports have been astounding. And like, th- and this, they're going to be able to sell this thing at an affordable price. Oh yeah, it's like absolutely comparable through, to through, a TV or or a they're like they're on record saying two hundred to four hundred. My money's oh my on three hundred. Does it need external well, yeah. um, reference points? I know that some of these systems like benefit from say like literally having you know pieces of paper and stuff stuck to your wall. No, it doesn't uh, need that. It, what it does, it has a, uh, an IR camera that you mount to uh, your computer like you would a webcam. Mm-hmm. And then there's tracking uh, uh, IR tracking lights within the Rift. So it uses that. So you don't need to like stick up QR codes all over your apartment or anything. <laughs> That's good. Uh, let's talk about um, augmented reality for a second because um, obviously in some senses that's the opposite of virtual reality but in some other senses it overlaps quite a bit um, and if you know if this thing were to have a forward-facing camera it could you know possibly integrate the real world right in front of you uh, with the simulated world that it's projecting as well right uh, or if it eventually has a translucent screen yeah oh absolutely yeah um, so I mean is that is there going to be a front-facing camera on this device, do you think? Or is that going to be left to later generations? Maybe. So augmented reality is really interesting. So Michael Abrash, who's the uh, chief science officer at Oculus, he was originally, um, he wanted to build augmented. That, that was his goal. And what happened was John Carmack comes to him and he says, I'm with you. I want to build augmented reality. But the thing is, augmented reality, to, to have good augmented reality, you have to solve all of the same problems as you solve for virtual reality mm. and then a ton more. Right. So it makes sense to build good virtual reality and then on top of that, build augmented reality. Right. So that argument would say that VR has to come first. Now, I, I think obviously there's, there are aspects of augmented reality that would be less cool than some of the ones we might imagine at first, like simple heads-up displays or things that are telling you what you're seeing, like Google Glass type stuff mm-hmm. that well, I think wouldn't follow that principle, right? Where, which oh, would- yeah, definitely. And so this is, this is something that's really interesting that I came out of nowhere and absolutely blew my mind. So um, have you guys heard of the company Magic Leap? No. Yeah, they're the people who do the hand sensor, right? No, oh, that's uh, that's Leap Motion. I know oh, it's confusing. Okay. Oh. So this company, Magic Leap, uh, no one had heard of them until uh, about a month of, ago. They closed a uh, $542 million funding round, which I believe is the third largest funding round for a startup in history. It was led by all of the top people in Silicon Valley, led by Google, Andreessen Horowitz, like huge, huge people. And they're based out of Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and they haven't announced a product. But if you go and you listen to what they have said about their product, they're building hardcore augmented reality. And like the stuff that they say they're building, I would have said was at least a decade away. They're talking like animal companions projected onto the real worlds so that you can, uh, they talked about having Pokemon battles in your backyard. Huh. Yeah. So, but that's, there's and, a lot of secrecy around this project, obviously. Yeah. I mean, like projected onto, Glasses. So, I'm so or? basically, what it looks like they're going to do is it's some sort of fiber optic cable that projects the that paints the light directly onto your retina. Oh wow! <laughs> so yeah, like a it's little, pretty incredible. A and little wire that sits on like a frame and just yeah, like pumps it's, light it's into it. You oh, can just wow. run it up, and then you could have like the processor in your pocket, <laughs> and like the wi- fiber optic cable runs up on a frame, and then like paints the image over your eyes. That is bonkers. It's so cool. And if you'd (laughs) asked me like 
a month ago, if this was possible, I would have said, yeah, like it'll happen like a decade from now. <laughs> yeah. And like, I wouldn't believe, I would think that they were full of something if, um, <laughs> if it wasn't for the fact that they, they got half a billion dollars. So whatever they're showing, it's got to be incredible. Yeah. Wow. That sounds amazing. I hope that that turns out to be real because that will probably solve a lot of the problems with current generation AR but that does sound like a totally different strategy than the one used by uh, Rift. It seems oh, like yeah. you and know they've actually they've taken a lot of shots at Oculus. Yeah, I mean, if 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 that actually works, uh, putting a, a dark shade over that and transforming it into a VR machine sounds like it would be. Yeah, no, that's extremely that, that easy. Is part of their strategy, they say that like um, they have this. They call it cinematic reality. They don't call it augmented reality, but it's basically <laughs> augmented reality. And then they also have the option to totally black out and uh, just go into VR. Yeah, wow, that's amazing. Um, I mean, depends on what kind of image quality they can get, but if they can get, you know, better than LCD screen image quality doing that, that um, that sounds like a better technological approach. Yeah, that and uh, just leapfrog you can, this other approach. You can actually um, you you can focus on objects much better this way, so you can actually have true depth of field like this because Oculus Rift the way with the flat screens, you can't really have complete depth of field where it looks like stuff is super far away. You can kind of trick yourself into that, but the way that your eyes focus, it's uh, you're going to be able to get a uh, much truer sense of the object if you use a magic leap type approach as far as I believe. I, I could be wrong about this because this gets pretty arcane and no one actually knows what they're doing, but that that's what I've been able to determine. Well, well, so why don't we change this to the, we've kind of talked about the different types of tech and some of the stuff that might be happening um, as soon, particularly the Oculus stuff, which we have, you know, pretty well confirmed at this point. And, and yeah, some version of that's coming out for but, sure. But uh, why don't we just kind of now take the assumption that, you know, VR is coming uh, it's going to get better and better. Yeah. Uh, it's going to have flaws in the beginning, of course, right? But assuming that this thing is going to follow, you know, some version of Moore's Law and it's going to get better and it's going to get better, you know, relatively soon within our lifetimes, uh, why don't we talk about what some of the, the cultural, economic, social impacts of this might be? Um, we've, we've addressed some of those indirectly already. So, right. uh, for example, we talked a little bit about addiction as a possibility. Um, and sort of, I think, the the flip side of that, which is, you know, using this technology maybe in education or to sort of like harness people's engagement for the purposes of teaching them rather than just uh sucking them trapping into... them in a candy crush scenario exactly <laughs> right um, which i mean the thing about addiction is obviously uh if more and more of our lives are just carried out virtually and the technology is compelling just using it a lot isn't in itself a problem oh no it's absolutely just a, not. a matter it, it of it could in many ways be a net positive right and it's just if it becomes a net negative for some reason if it's causing you know people's bodies to atrophy because they're lying <laughs> prone all day experiencing super compelling vr then maybe we need to like do something about that but exactly uh, yeah that that's something and uh we talked about a little bit about this maybe starting to displace traditional uh Media well, yeah, or experiences. I, I mean, I want to get into that. So, that. so you mentioned uh, jaunt VR uh, and the idea of of sort of viewing, you know, panoramic movies uh, in three hundred and sixty degrees using an Oculus type viewing system, uh, and that's of course in direct competition potentially with movies. Um, but you know, obviously, this is a new format too. It has different strengths and weaknesses from other mediums that we've had in the past. So, I'm wondering, you know, obviously, this is going to carve up the pie. Uh, for consumers entertainment, you know, a little bit more and they're going to take some fraction of the market. 
But, you know, how big is that fraction, right? To what extent does this displace traditional video games, uh, traditional concert experiences, right. uh, and, and Movies, so on, and, and uh, so forth? Like, so- like, what's your opinion about that, Jason? I mean, I think it could be huge. I really think that it could provide a whole new set of experiences. And I, I think that when you look at a virtual reality experience that we're going to have for entertainment in the future, it's going to be harder to just put it into like a bucket of this is a video game or this is a movie. And um, so I know that that sounds a little maybe out there, but I, I have an example actually from the real world that I think is what we're more trending towards. So. Have you guys heard of the uh, play slash interactive experience Sleep No More? Yes, actually. Yeah. Uh, but why don't you so, describe that for, for sure. us? Sure. Yeah, I will, uh, I'll go into it a little bit. So Sleep No More is this really, really awesome uh, interactive theater experience where they took the concept of Hamlet, or actually Macbeth. It was Macbeth. And this theater company took an old abandoned warehouse and transformed the entire thing into one giant set piece for this play. And so what happens when you go to sleep no more, you go there and you're handed a mask and you're told to roam free. And then what happens is over the course of the show, their actors are going and they're acting out different parts of the scene across different rooms. So you could, for example, stay in one room and see all the action that happens in that room. You could follow one character around and see what they do across the course of the play. But there is no way that in one viewing of that, you could ever possibly see all of the things that it has to offer. Uh, so yeah, uh, that that sounds. I actually went to a very very similar play experience uh, out here in LA that was set at a high school reunion, and they did it at an actual high school at night, and it was very similar. <laughs> you could wander around into the different rooms and like see characters talking to each other. And at one point, I was alone in a room with like a character that was just weeping <laughs> by themselves, <laughs> and I was the only person watching That's that weird. actor. Yeah, but it was a really cool experience. Actually, it sounds like an experiment that may or may not work, but at least my uh, experience of it was was positive, but I'm sorry. Go on. No, uh, that that's actually fascinating. I'd love to hear. You. So, do you think that you could take something like that and then use that as kind of the new format for entertainment in VR? I mean, I think that that's definitely like a model that you could try even now with like you know a 3D video game, but that I think it just wouldn't be compelling enough, and maybe VR would make it cross into that threshold of where that would be an actual viable interactive storytelling medium um that i mean it's hard to say with these new types of like mediums like whether or not they're just going to be sort of niche experiments or whether they're the kind of thing that can really take off and sustain a market yeah but but, uh but i mean i i I assume i mean that's just one example right i mean that's just one type of way Uh, oh yeah absolutely so that's just one of the because because with virtual reality i mean literally your imagination is the limit. If you can think it, you can create it. Right. That's interesting. I, for for my taste, um, uh, something like that seems uh, doomed to always be kind of experimental because uh, I feel like it doesn't fully capitalize on the the positive, you know, the benefits of of an interactive experience or a passive narrative experience. And I feel mm-hmm. like, um, to me, the promise of virtual reality, uh, for the most part, is that I think it's going to ephemeralize and make cheaper like uh, pretty much all of the experience-based entertainment scarcity we have left, like uh, concerts, theater, traditional theater experiences where you're watching actors on a stage. If you can log in with your Oculus Rift, have the best seat in the house, 
still be able to see the other participants, but maybe not hear them chatter. <laughs> um, so you have that, you know, you have that shared experience thing that's part of going to the theater. Uh, but you also have, you know, um, pristine audio and video, uh, and you can move the camera or you can get up and get on stage without disturbing the, uh, the actors. Uh, I feel like <laughs> that's going to be, you know, and it's also a, a tenth of the price of a Broadway ticket or something. I feel like that's going to oh, yeah. be, you know, a, a tremendously compelling. people that can get to Broadway too. Exactly. So you could have the whole world going to see the Broadway premiere of a show because it's being, you know, um, simul filmed in uh 360 vision or whatever <laughs> mm. you know and then uh uh you, every you know a hundred thousand extra people can log in uh, to me that's going to be uh a major use of it um taking over those traditional passive experiences and then obviously just like an upgraded better version of of games like well which what is about, like a theme park though because that's kind of like what i would want is something that's not exactly a game but is a place you go with your friends, right? And contains that's designed games for fun. Right, it, well, right. it would contain and games and, and rides other and other amusements. Some of which are passive, some of which are active. Sure. And you can wander yeah. around, and and it could follow completely arbitrary rules too. I mean, it's not like you know you could you could teleport around this place, and you could you sure. know like mm -hmm. I mean the various things that you obviously can't do in a real theme park. Right. And right. Yeah. That kind of goes back towards the concept of the metaverse where we would each have our avatars and we could say 10 years from now we walk into the metaverse, I could go to one of these sleep no more type experiences and you guys could go to the virtual theme park and then we'd be able to seamlessly, if I got bored of mine, I'd just be able to go and be there with you and we'd be able to go and just experience whatever we want. And it's interesting if you think of the internet as the democratization of information, you can kind of think of VR in the metaverse as the democratization of experiences. Yeah, that, that makes sense to me. It's a uh, ephemeralization and, and therefore democratization of all these kinds of experiences. I, I just assume, I guess, that we'll continue to see some categories in the sense that people will either choose something more that's like a passive shared viewing experience versus or something that's more like a uh, an active game type experience uh, on a on an experience by experience basis. Maybe splitting that difference is generally hard because one's a linear experience and one's a non-linear experience. Right, right, right. and the, the and typical they, tension between inter like interactivity and stories. Right, is, right, it doesn't right. necessarily but, go away. But also, like the interactivity becomes, I think they, I think they both get a boost in how compelling they are. Because you take yeah, something like Minecraft that. and you add in like haptics in VR and all of a sudden you can actually live in your creations. It's, it's incredibly compelling. But at the same time, virtual reality movies where you get to live the scenario are also going to be way more compelling. So it's going to be this crazy tug of war. Totally. Yeah, no, it's going to help all these things. Um, right, but, but right. It, it, are there situations where it won't help? I guess like just to play devil's advocate here, are there mediums where it's like, all right, I don't really want to feel scared when the character goes to the edge of a cliff or like, you know, I, I need a little more detached experience. I mean, obviously, like, I mean, this is just going to be one more option for entertainment. I don't think the other things are going to go away completely, right? Because there are some times when you may not want this level of engagement. Yeah, I agree with that, but I still kind of think I'd rather uh, watch like uh, a, a virtual reality movie where I'm just in a virtual reality movie theater seeing a virtual reality movie on a big high quality screen then do the same thing on like TV at home where you're still yeah. basically having a 2D watching experience 2D but, watching but you've experience. got the trappings of a theater around you right and like you could be there with your friends like right yeah, that's I, the main I, thing I, is I, your friends and the screen size mm -hmm. 
Could I be. think that a lot of the things that we do that were traditional non-VR activities could actually be done in the home in virtual reality. Like um, you posted the article from Thought Infection where he's talking about the VR economy and just the VR coffee shop where you go and you drink your coffee and you have your own cup of coffee, but you're going and you're paying a couple cents a minute just to have the experience of being around other people. Yeah, well, I, I think that raises some really interesting things too that I want to talk about because ephemeralization of experiences makes these experiences cheaper, right? And uh, closer to zero cost. And these are all issues that we've talked about on the podcast before. Uh, and uh, what is the remaining scarcity here if we have really good VR? And if we have really good VR, but not really good AI, then the remaining scarcity is people to populate these places, right? So uh, all these ex virtual experiences we're talking about, um, you're going to want your friends to be there. And presumably you won't have to pay your friends to be there. But if you want <laughs> to go to a theme park that has employees or... Uh, a coffee shop that has employees or you want some or just designers who get paid right or virtual actors you know to play parts right. in your personal fantasy whatever that is um, then those are potentially jobs right I mean I think that that's I'm not sure how plausible I find that scenario in terms of like being a large employment sector but that's definitely an issue that was raised by that uh, by that thought infection article uh, which we'll post to uh, in the show notes, but also uh, Jason, you brought that up too when we were working on the outline for this. So, so what do you think of that? Of like virtual jobs, basically playing roles in virtual environments. Yeah, well, I mean, we've already seen that, as Todd Infection pointed out in his article. You think of things like the guy that became a millionaire selling virtual real estate in Second Life, or all of the people that are gold farming in World of Warcraft to uh, to pay their bills. Well, so you're. I think oh, there's sorry. a dis sorry, I, I'm interrupting you because I think there's a distinction there and that I think there's actually two things at work, right? Because uh, virtual gold farming and virtual real estate is to me like a version of artificial scarcity where you're, and I think that's also a very real part of this, where you're selling access to a commodity that you've sort of invented out of thin air. Um, and that's different, I think, than, than sort of leveraging the actual irreducible scarcity of a smart person playing like an, a role. Do you see? I'm oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, that actually, uh, if you guys have read the Diamond Age, that's a yeah. really good book where they talk about that, where they have all of these great virtual reality experiences, but they still need the actors to play the voices. And I, I can totally imagine things like that, where we're probably not going to have human level AI for the next couple decades, who will, which will be able to go in and have that actual conversation with us. Say, I want, I don't know, I want to have an experience where I, like, make contact with aliens. There will probably have to be someone playing that alien for the experience to be any good. And so you can either have some sort of community where there's, like, astronauts and aliens, or that alien could very well be someone that's compensated for the experience. Um, but Yeah, yeah, go ahead, sorry. Oh, I'm just saying, you're right, I... It, it all goes back to every time we talk about the jobs that are replaced by automation, it's just hard to see them taking up the same number. Right, right. right. Yeah, and, and one person could plausibly serve many customers doing this. Let's say I'm really good at imitating aliens. Uh, I'll go with that since that was your idea. Um, I might be able to log on, do a 12-hour day, you know, where I'm uh, doing um, voice and text commands for, you know, several different conversations simultaneously all day serve, you know, uh, 20 or 30, uh, alien wanting customers and, um, and they might all get a, a satisfactory experience. Right. Uh, so that's very different from the one-on-one -on -one sort of cosplay 
job that this person is replacing <laughs> in our society, um, which is like you know, one person plus a furry outfit that they had to get at considerable cost. So yeah, I, I can see this is definitely looks like one of these situations where um, the ephemeralization creates lower prices, more access, better outcome for consumers, but at the same time, uh, fewer opportunities uh, for ordinary people to work. But then is that compensated by a huge increase in demand of people want, I mean, you know, how much demand is there for a typical cosplay actor? But if everybody can have like these home VR experiences, there might be. And if they're cheap enough and accessible enough, then yeah, you might see that market explode. You're Um, right. But I mean, for me, like, that sounds kind of cool, but I still feel like I would be spending most of my time just like hanging out with my friends on virtual Mars or something. Like I, maybe this is just me, but right. personally, I think that I would do more natural, organic things. So I, I'm not sure I see really like the virtual role player being a huge role in the future. Right. Well, also there's this rise of you know you know amateurs and interest groups and stuff on the internet so it's kind of like you know maybe the person playing the alien just likes playing aliens oh, yeah. and they don't need yeah. to be compensated like maybe they want to be there more than you even want to be there because <laughs> that's their fantasy is to be an alien i mean it, you know the internet sh- shows that there's people out there who want to do almost everything that's for true free. and, and Wait, that's matching point, algorithms though. are getting there's good. going to be yeah. some really really disturbing stuff made by the people that are on 4chan right now <laughs> for sure <laughs> like, yeah virtual 4chan is someplace i think i will never go i think i'll just go ahead and say that really now. weird i'm, I'm just gonna, gonna have my I'm finger on the n- eject button if i ever go in there again. <laughs> just get ready to rip that thing straight <laughs> off your face yeah um so but let's go back to the other thing that you raised because i do think it's important too the uh the idea of this artificial scarcity type stuff where you're you know and, and it's a little bit like uh you know second life and things that happen there but a little bit also like these uh these free-to-play games, you know, where you can purchase in-game upgrades and, uh, you know, things to trick out your avatar. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, the possibility in this sort of virtualized space of selling all kinds of purely uh, invented products uh, is very high. Um, And so I I think, I don't know to what extent the economic impact of that will be. Oh, I think it's going to be huge. I think it's going to be, Think about how massive online advertising is. It's going to be that, but so much more. Think about Google Analytics, which tracks where you click and what websites you visit. And then imagine when you're walking through a virtual mall, they're going to see what your gaze lingered on for a tenth of a second longer. And then next time you're in that mall, you better bet you're going to see an awesome ad for that car that you were just looking at. Well, but that is an interesting thing you raised, though, because in some ways advertising is the opposite of selling access, right? So like if we if the advertising model says usually we give you free access, but then we capture your attention and we make you look at sponsors, right? Whereas the selling access model says like we're not even going to show you the content until you pay and then maybe at that point it's ad free. Do you see what I'm saying? So yeah. so I wonder which of those would be dominant. I mean, it seems like on the larger internet um the the advertising model seems a lot bigger to me. Oh, yeah, I definitely think so. And just the, I think there's a very strong and core belief that the metaverse should be free and the metaverse should be open access in the same way that the, like, net neutrality, I guess you could call it VR neutrality. And you also, you really don't want one company running the metaverse. You don't want Facebook's metaverse to be the metaverse. You want there to be a wider ecosystem of metaverse I that you can traverse between the Zuckerverse, you know? <laughs> the Zuckerverse. Yeah. 
<laughs> I'm sure oh, someone else has already terrifying. come up with that, but it isn't. <laughs> that's hilarious. I haven't heard that before. <laughs> All right, that's the uh, that's the tweet for this episode. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, have you read uh, Ready Player One? It's that. Oh yeah, yeah. So that obviously has a, a, another um, well portrayed uh, VR universe. Yeah, I'd say that that's probably the best uh, depiction of a metaverse that I've ever read, and it's pretty interesting. But the the thing about that is obviously. They don't really ever ex- address any of the limitations of VR. It's not really clear how he's doing all of this stuff when he's sitting in his car. He doesn't really have like the haptics or the power gear. So the actual like practicality of getting the metaverse to that level, I think it'll happen, but it's gonna be it's gonna be tough. Well, actually, one thing that happens in that book too that's a little bit weird, and I, I want to speculate about whether it's plausible. Uh, whether it's plausible is that uh, in that book, it's kind of a, a relatively bleak future where you know people live in slums and uh there's massive inequality but uh vr and access to this virtual world is very cheap right so there's a lot of people that live in very like small hovels uh that are very unpleasant to be in but Mm -hmm. then they have access to this massive world and i wonder you know if we're talking about ephemeralization of experiences and uh communication replacing transportation in the sense that I can now be in the same space as somebody uh, far across the world. What does that do to where people choose to live and to, you know, possibly even real estate prices? Like, I mean, you know, at the very far extreme of this, um, if these virtual reality experiences when you come home are super awesome, maybe you can stand to live in a much smaller apartment because that won't be feel so oppressive if you can, you know, go into this wide open space uh, inside the machine. Um, and also maybe you'll choose to live in the cheapest place possible, even if that's very far from a lot of your loved ones or your work, if you can... Or economic centers, because you can telecommute. Right. I mean, a lot yeah. of the reason people live in cities now is for work. And yeah, so you could potentially get well, around Well, for that. work and experiences, both of which are going right. to be able to be transported into VR. They'll be ephemeralized it, or possibly just automated away. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, it's, it's actually, it's pretty insane to think what it's going to do to our, um, our living patterns. You're right, because... On one hand, we've had up until now this massive march into the city. But if this, if VR does have the effect that personally I think it does, and I think you guys agree with me to a point, then it might actually affect that. Yeah, and it could, yeah, it could really change real estate prices too, which is like, um, yeah, I mean, you would not, like, the city is an expensive place to live. So, I mean, people are going to want to live, if they don't need to live in the city, they're not going to choose to. And also, if they don't need, as much land, they're not going to go for as much land. And it could, yeah, Mm -hmm. really. And there's another really interesting tech that's going to intersect with this and maybe make that even speed up, which is the self-driving car. So say I live six hours away from any of my friends, but anytime I want to see them, I can just summon a self-driving car and then bonk back into the metaverse for six hours and then be there in person for whatever thing i felt compelled to do in the real world and there's there's no time lost yes you can be there while you're waiting for your body to show up right right isn't that insane you can be hanging out with your friends while you're waiting for your physical thing to show up so would it be a smart move right now to buy like a bunch of land somewhere cheap in like the middle of the country detroit yeah. anticipating that later you'll be able to live there and get anywhere. <laughs> That's anyways. what we should do. We should turn Detroit into uh, the metaverse hub. Yeah, we should just buy like a city block in Detroit and start building tiny rooms with really fast internet hookups. <laughs> uh, you know, as many of them as we can 
little pods, fit. little like VR pods. Yeah. No, but I mean, it's like maybe you it'll... talk about that, and Ready Player One does have this kind of like uh, dystopian future, but I. I don't see VR contributing to that, and that's not the way I personally see the world trending. The world in Ready Player One really is as it's as if you had VR technology proceed as it will, but nothing else continued. Like, right, right. If we well, suddenly stopped focusing on biotech, on nanotech, on solar, on AI, on big data, all of these other things, and only focused on VR, then actually the world in Ready Player One might be might be plausible. But if you look at the trends of how people are going, virtual reality is just going to be one of the other thing that helps accelerate this massive ecosystem, which is the crazy, crazy present that we live in. Well, we're, we're completely with you on that point. Yeah, I mean, that's a huge pet peeve of ours is uh, how many of these science fiction stories, you know, really focus on one well, it's honestly technological like a, element. It's to- almost like a truism in science fiction. They say, keep everything the same and change one thing. Mm-hmm. And you see why people do that. It's much easier to think through the consequences of one thing than many things. So I totally mm-hmm. get why it happens. But yeah, it's something John and I have complained about bitterly to one another for years. <laughs> yeah, it's so true. I've got a recommendation for you. I just finished them. I think they're the best sci-fi books I've ever read. The uh, the Quantum Thief trilogy, it's just hands down the best post-singularity sci-fi I've ever read. And uh, he's been to Singularity University. He's uh, He works for, I believe, a biotech startup. So he's all involved with this, but it's just like, it's so far out and like the, it involves like hardcore singularity theory. It's incredible. Well, I'll definitely check that out. Uh, that's a pretty strong recommendation, and we'll put a we'll put a link to that too in the in the show notes. I do think there would be a temptation, and some of this requires probably better AI technology as well, which we probably will have, assuming that all these things advance together. Um, that your own personal fantasy world that's populated by AI characters that kind of behave the way you want them to, oh yeah, uh, might be very tempting to spend time in. Um, instead of, you know, the much messier world of social interactions where, you know, your friends do what they want and sometimes that conflicts with you and so on and so forth. I think that that actually is a pretty compelling risk that there will be people that kind of disengage. I mean, you already kind of see it like in Japan with the hikikomori phenomenon and whatnot. Yeah, that's like got a pretty specific cultural context too. But yeah, I think there's, there's something already pretty compelling about today's media technologies. And if you imagine that essentially VR is just more compelling, better media technology, you can definitely see some people just diving completely into it, uh, especially when it starts to mimic social interaction in ways that are complex enough to be pleasing. You know, like if AI gets good enough to, to populate these yeah. worlds uh, with, with um, decently interesting interactive characters, which, you know, if you look at how games are going, it seems like we're on the... We're on the path to that. Maybe engagement in the virtual world just becomes more important to people. I'm not saying that they're only in their mind with their own avatars. They're maybe in the virtual world with all their friends and everybody, but their um, their screen time becomes more important for them to be engaged in than, say, uh, political discourse was the, mm-hmm. the thing. In the, that's interesting to me, but I wonder whether the same thing that's happened with the internet and internet activism won't just happen in VR. Like, since the government will ostensibly have a lot of influence over what happens in the VR world. Oh, yeah. I mean, they'll probably have meetups. They just be... You probably can go hang out in the Tea Party Metaverse chat room, which I'm sure will just be a boatload of fun. <laughs> I'm sure. I, well, if you're a Tea Party, I'm sure it'll be a great time. Uh, and I'm sure you could... I mean, why not be able to vote in virtual reality? Why, why do you need to come out of virtual reality and go down to the polling station to vote? We should be able... I mean... 
Why don't yeah, we but vote we on be able to fly now? The today. That's well, the exactly. Uh, but it seems like that can't last forever. That that foolishness, can it? I mean, um, <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> it's I, I, you know, I guess I'm saying this as you know. We should do a whole episode on revising. Currently, democracy, there's like yeah. a movement to prevent people from voting even at the polling place just because they're you know poorer than other people. So uh, maybe I, I'm. Sp- being too idealistic, but uh, it seems to me like political engagement would just sort of move online and like maybe we would have an end run around existing political structures where they become unimportant and whoever's actually regulating the VR internet, the companies and nonprofits and NGOs that are doing the, the regulating turn into the new targets of political action. But yeah, I mean, that would be the ideal and Honestly, there's all sorts of things that go on in the physical world uh, from political to scientific research. Imagine if you could have like scientists collaborating. Obviously, you still have to do the physical research in the real world. Some of it, I'm yeah. Sure, I'm sure even with a lot of robotics and automatic testing, you could do that as well. I think there's a lot of things you can test well, and it fully might virtually. The data we need to develop some some better uh, social science theories for things like economics. Right, right. uh, Because of how, you know, I mean, the problem of something like economics is like, how do you get the data? It's very hard to collect that and sift through it and control for anything. But in a a virtual environment, you know, all that data is a little easier to collect, I think. Right, Um, right. And if you combine mm -hmm. that with better algorithms, you might be able to actually sort all that data as well. Right. Um, I wonder, this is just totally spitballing, but... I wonder if blockchain and Bitcoin technology would be, I mean, it seems like it's kind of a natural partner to the metaverse. It just fits in with the whole kind of theme. And I, w- I wonder if that will be adopted for a lot of those in metaverse transactions. One would imagine some type of digital currency would end up being the coin of the realm in uh, it only in makes sense, virtual right? space. Pay them with face bits. I mean, yeah, if it's, you know, if we're in Facebook's uh Well, then you don't garden, need the blockchain method, right? You can then, you can centralize and uh, confirm the uh, money that way, right? But right, yeah. just through I Facebook, mean, right? But we want to do it on blockchain probably I mean, if you want a truly open metaverse, then that's the best solution I think we have for like a distributed, you know, artificial scarcity type system where we Mm -hmm. have a scarce commodity, but it doesn't, you know, have as much centralized power as you would need if it was, you know, truly face bits. Right, Um, right. Yeah. uh, So, yeah, I think that that is a natural pairing. Um, It just depends on who's setting up the virtual world, of course. And uh, it's going to be very interesting to see like the kind of, foundation and like philosophy that the metaverse gets built up on well and you know one model that we might have is it might work like you know competing social networks essentially and then you'd have really annoying platform conflicts where you're like you know i've got all of my you know digital gold and cool avatar things over here in this metaverse and then i can't port it to this other metaverse that's this different company and like i can't be friends with you because you always hang out in this other metaverse like i mean you could have a lot of these annoying problems right that's probably how we're trending and that's honestly the worst possible scenario (laughs) yeah no it does seem like a succession of walled gardens with no intercompatibility I mean, that, that's how all our cell phones and web services work today. And yeah. Unless we come up with like a very good like VR API, which is a hilarious acronym that like can transfer, <laughs> can like store, <laughs> Rappy. <laughs> yeah. So as I'm moving between the Twitter, Twitter metaverse and the Facebook metaverse, if I have a good Rappy that can export all of my uh, features, that's fine to have the competing metaverse and it's actually good. 
So right. Well, if everybody can agree to an open, open standard, then uh, the competition is a good thing. But what we've mm -hmm. seen uh, recently, and video game systems are the same way uh, as as those other things you mentioned. Um, they are they tend to be these uh, these competing uh, systems that basically also the other thing that's screwy with that is that then there's a strong incentive on the part of the people making the particular uh, service you're using to try to keep you there, right? There's like a, a an audience retention strategy, especially if this is like a free place that you hang out and you're subjected to ads, um, which again, oh, yeah. if, you know, That's you're talking about hanging out with your friends on virtual Mars. You don't want to have your friends be charged. So unless you're all subscribed to the same virtual Mars, you're probably going to go to the free virtual Mars, right? Where there's, mm -hmm. you know, it's an, it's like a mall or something. They're showing you ads. And uh, in that case, they're going to really want to keep you there with compelling stuff. So they're going to be doing uh, whatever they can to, uh, to keep you from going to uh, that other company's um, set. And uh, that's potentially not what you want them to be doing. That's well, potentially no, different from... Well, they use the same mind hacks that they use with these games and stuff right. to like, keep you there and like give you... you get one more free point or, or whatever. One more, yeah. 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 With the games and also with general web services, with things like retargeting and they're going to yeah. look at their virtual server bounce rate and <laughs> they're going to get A-B tested so much. Yeah. No, you could see that. And you could see that getting to a point where these things... I mean, the obvious utility of them aside where these things could have some pretty negative um, uh, you know, side effects, basically, yeah, of people getting definitely. Uh, it, just like, even more mind control advertising, mind hackery thrown at them by even more sophisticated actors. Mm -hmm. And let me say that I'm not against advertising in VR per se. It could be, if done authentically, perfectly fine, a way to support cool free experiences. And if you're being shown cool things then there's nothing wrong with that. Like the Game of Thrones experience that they made, that's awesome. I would love to do that as like my payment for entering Virtual Mars. <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe you're walking around Virtual Mars and uh, there's like a virtual Game of Thrones character, like a Tyrion Lannister walking around and he just starts chatting with you and he's like, hey, yeah. have you checked out HBO's new content? I noticed and you like, were searching for my show recently. And you're like, <laughs> I, I got to get on my way to the Virtual Mars space meeting, but thanks anyways. And he's like, all right. Well, it's just kind of like the guy handing out pamphlets on the street, you know? Um, it, yeah. It, it might be, be hilarious. Yeah, it might I be but yeah. if that guy comes around every corner, the third time you see him, you're going to want to strangle him. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I like that's, that, citizen. Yeah. Oh, and that's what like I think advertising always has to struggle with is how do they control your mind without pissing you off so much that you disengage? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's only ever worked on some small fraction of people, but now they're going to have even better feedback. They're going to have even better data. They're going to know even better if you're the kind of person who they can get to or what kind of tactics they have to use. So uh, just the same way that virtual reality becomes like a sort of difference in kind as it gets to be such a compelling form of media that it's almost not like media anymore. It's almost life. I mean, that's such, yeah. thus, thus, thus the term virtual reality. Um, I think, you know, media advertising is annoying sometimes and effective other times. Um, you know, algorithm driven internet advertising is sometimes more effective and sometimes less annoying. But virtual reality advertising has the potential to be, you know, an advertising life of hell. <laughs> well, but they don't want it to be the life of hell because then you'll disengage. The, the, the problem is with me is the potential to be almost too good. Well, right, right, right. Well, and then that's an interesting question because if advertising is truly good and truly works and controls your mind and, and generates in you a 
a genuine desire, which then you fulfill with a, a, a purchase, then it's arguable that they did nothing wrong. Again, if there's consequences, let's say somebody's buying more than they can afford. Let's say they can't get particularly good work because we're you know, in a future where there's not as many uh, well-paid jobs. And uh, they're per- so perfectly being advertised to because the advertising company has such great data and they're using it so perfectly that they end up buying all kinds of things that they want and like, mm-hmm. but can't afford. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Uh, but it, I mean, if we're going down the road of uh, assuming that the technologies all progress at the same time, we're not just progressing a couple in lockstep. Sure. Then we have to think about the way that our economy is going to be at this point. Because this is going to be 10, 12 years out probably when this is that powerful. Yeah. Although actually so, maybe I'm being conservative there. Uh-huh. But if we look at things like... Um, have you read the Zero Marginal Cost Society? Yeah. 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 So as we start to move towards a zero marginal cost society where capitalism is less important and we, we're moving more towards the creative commons, then maybe virtual reality advertisement will be important, but we could have the virtual commons places, which are just made by the free work open source community. Yeah. And I think those things will probably exist alongside each other. And uh, sure, I mean, as they do now, will to some extent determine, you know, where most people spend their time. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it seems, it seems like these days people, you know, spend a lot more time with proprietary walled garden type services. They happen to be winning at the moment. But I, I don't think, think that yeah. that's like a law or anything. And especially yeah. like if the trend is towards more of a creative commons as, you know, someone like Jeremy Rifkin might argue, then 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 maybe that sector will grow. The sort of like open source uh, mm-hmm. shared uh, community type model. Which um, is obviously the more desirable of the two. It definitely seems that way. Yeah. yeah. I mean, from my perspective, it does seem that way. Uh, it definitely seems more inclusive uh, as well, uh, because the thing I worry most about uh, in these futures of artificial scarcity and an artificially propped up version of our current uh, economic system persisting into the future is the, you know, things are going to be great for rich people in that world. Like, the technology <laughs> is going to work. Like, we're not worried about that. Um, but it's just basically how hard it would be in a world like that to get ahead. If you are starting off behind, um, there would be I, s- so few ladders, I think, to pull yourself I up. I don't think I agree with that statement. Because if you look at what the internet and smartphones have done for people who maybe are in a developing country, the things like microfinance, Khan Academy, what they're doing with the Global Learning X Prize in mm-hmm. Coursera, they really are, it seems like, more tools to help yourself be lifted up. And as we get into an economy that's based more around VR experiences, which the tools to make that will probably be at least somewhat democratized, then they'll be able to maybe make a good living designing hairdos for people's avatars, you know? It definitely can't be ruled out. I mean, you know, it's so hard to to visualize how big these markets are going to be. I mean, that's sort of the perennial problem with this type of forecasting, right? Right. I mean, I hope you're right about that. I guess I worry that uh, the one guy who's great at designing haircuts is going to design everyone's haircuts and become rich. And maybe that guy will be like a poor guy from India who, who, you know, pulled himself up. But that statistically... Uh, there'll still be a billion more people in India who haven't figured okay. something out. Right. I mean, it's it's well, not that I it's not that I disagree with that, and I hope that mm-hmm. I hope that that works out and that this creates a big enough economy to replace uh, all the people who are being displaced out of uh, traditional service and mm-hmm. and factory jobs. But no, I mean, I agree with you. Of course, it's going to be a winner take all economy 
as most digital services tend to be. What's interesting is, uh, so you guys have heard about the experiment Reddit's doing where it's giving away 10% of its market cap as value back to its users? No. Uh, tell us about that. Okay, so this is pretty fascinating. So Reddit, uh, they just closed a $50 million funding round, and part of what they're doing as they move forward is they're taking 10% of their equity, so 10% of the total worth of the company, and somehow they're going to distribute it back to the user users of the company as a sort of admission that says this company cannot exist without the users and we kind of need people with buying power on our site if our site is going to exist. Interesting. Uh, is there any other precedent for something like that? I mean, that sounds no, like a it's very new entirely idea. entirely unprecedented. I think it's going to go down as a really historic move. Uh, that's certainly gutsy of them. And, and those guys at Reddit have, of course, a long history of being, uh, you know, more on the open side of the internet culture. Uh, they're not your typical like proprietary startup. So that's not totally surprising coming from mm -hmm. them. Um, but that's interesting. a model like that where you get some metaverse creds just for existing and contributing to, to the community could help kind of mitigate the consequences of the winner-take-all economy, you know? True. And I would, you know, if... If retention of people in your metaverse space and competition among metaverses is, is pretty fierce, right. then you know that's a really strong strategy for engendering loyalty. I mean, you know, right? It, I mean, it, you can literally go as far as paying people to hang out in your space. Google or somebody, or it could be Reddit, somebody big enough like that could literally just pay you credits for the time you spend on their site. Oh yeah, absolutely. And then they resell your eyes to advertisers, or you create content that they used to draw other people in or whatever, whatever. Well, there is precedent for that in the sense that like, you know, you can partake in, you know, Google's advertising in various ways, like via a YouTube channel that survey right. ads and stuff and right. get some of that money back to you. Mm -hmm. um, it's pretty marginal now, but, you know, again, in a future where things marginal are generally might be good cheaper. Right. Yeah, I mean, yeah. some of that, you know, those pennies that you're getting in income for selling your attention might actually be able to stretch further and actually pay for some of your life expenses. Right, well, especially if you're only paying for, you know, the kinds of things that are still irreducibly scarce for whatever reason, uh, and those things, price have gone down, you know, then yeah, there might be a version of the future where everybody makes a lot less, but where subsistence is also a lot less. And yeah, so, it's like a pretty know. radical change, but I kind of, I think that VR kind of fits into this whole model of the future of the economy after we have this third industrial revolution. Yeah, it definitely seems like a way of providing a lot of previously scarce and expensive goods to people for free or cheap. So, Absolutely. Uh, on that level, I can definitely see it bringing the overall cost of experiences and cost of living down. And, you know, actually among the technologies we talk about here, in a way, I feel like VR is less prone to destroy jobs than, say, automation or other uh, technologies because it seems like mostly what it I mean, it'll it'll have an effect on certain kinds of experiences that are now scarce, but uh, I feel mm -hmm. like it's it's more improve. You know, it's taking some things that are already ephemeralized digital media and just like sort of improving them on a lot. Yeah, a, that's true. It, if if VR had like come first, it would have taken away jobs. But I feel like a lot of the jobs that it's going to affect have already kind of they've been already taken gone. Away. They're yeah. jobs like being a you know a record 
label executive or something mm-hmm. like that. <laughs> you know, those jobs have already been taken by lower resolution digital media um, mm-hmm. devices. Well, and it adds opportunities for monetization. I mean, this is not sure. the, not this is the darker version that we don't necessarily want, but I mean, it does make every experience quantifiable and you can and charge access. Right, right, right. Um, so, I mean, there's possible you know, ability to build a job full economy out of that. I, um, I, I think I can think of like a slightly less evil implementation sure, of what sure. you're talking about, which is uh, it's sort of similar to, um, to live streaming, right? Which live streaming has really changed uh, monetization of media in the last couple of years where, you know, the, it used to be like between a download you paid for and a download you didn't pay for. And it was clear to everybody, which was the <laughs> better thing to choose. But uh, when you started to be able to click and immediately experience, either watch or hear right away because the, the stream was there. And uh, in the case of audio, when you started to have the ability to, you know, do a radio station that would play constantly song after song so you didn't have to mm-hmm. t- tend to it, that turned out to be valuable enough to some people that they're now paying for things like Spotify and Netflix, um, which are, you know, they are selling you with the convenience of a stream, of an immediate stream. And VR, many VR experiences are, by their nature, sort of, in, uh, you know, temporally locked. They're, uh, they're a stream because the other person who's in that space is there now, be there later. Like, there's some kinds of VR experiences that can be recorded, I realize, but there are many of them that are sort of intrinsically real time that are real time not yeah and, novel yeah. and real time like and they're different every time so. yeah so and require human interaction and right so if you require people and that's one of the reasons that they have to be real time that they're not going to be the same each time uh then that's very monetizable because you've got that same scarcity that the streaming sites have you can monetize the temporal propri- uh, priority it, it doesn't seem to suffer from problems of piracy is, is kind of one of the things you're saying. Right. right. I mean, it's harder yeah. to pirate something that you have to experience. You, know, yeah. you could hack their system, I guess, but it does seem harder. It seems like much easier for them to protect against that, much easier to monetize that. And it doesn't seem to me to be as quite, a, quite as evil uh, as like, say, locking something down so that you you buy a license to something and then you can't use the thing that you've bought. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, the no stream good. is just, it's being offered the way it's offered and it is what it is, you know? Um, so I, I think, yeah, you can see that there'll be maybe some opportunity to remonetize some media experiences through the, the temporal quality of, of uh, streaming VR. There was only one other issue that I sort of was interested in talking about maybe briefly, which is the idea of sort of the artist's responsibility to the audience with these because we, we talked about how powerful the presence can be, right? And this is something that might be an issue in the very near term, you know, if this stuff gets consumer ready fast, like you said, in the next year, um, and it has the power to actually make you feel fearful when you're standing on a ledge or to like feel like you need to duck or like you said, it can make you vomit or induce motion sickness, right? Uh, very, very powerful emotions. Possibly, I mean, all of our... Previous art forms have also had the capacity to produce very, very powerful emotions. But well, right, because we have mirror neurons, basically. <laughs> but you could argue that this might be uh, an it's, order of it's magnitude. It's a different level. That. It's a it's a magnitude shift. I think it really is. And uh, we've already seen some really interesting work that's very, very emotionally effective. There was um there was a journalist that she uh, re- she used footage. Uh, I believe it was audio footage of a uh, a border patrol. At, um, that attempted to arrest someone and uh, they killed them and it was not done very well. You can tell that it was a 
they just, I mean, basically it was murder. And what they, she did is she translated this and she took the real audio and she put it into a VR experience. And it's supposed to be extremely compelling and emotionally distressing. So you start thinking of something like this being used as, say, for propaganda, it could be it could be really powerful, but it could also be a powerful unifying force if you were to put an Australia, uh, an Israeli, and a Palestinian, a teenager together in a safe place, and maybe maybe you give them a bowling alley, a virtual bowling alley, or something, and you just attempt to have them see the other person as human in virtual reality. Yeah, I mean, I think it, like so many of these things, it can be used for good or for for evil. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, yeah, but it like, you unlock those really powerful emotions. And I think, yeah, it does, it does say a lot about the responsibility of the person making the content that, uh, it's sort of up to them to, to use it for, you know, improving people rather than, you know, you know, playing to their darker nature. I mean, obviously this is going to reawaken all of the old debates about violence in media that we always have to deal with every time a new medium comes out. But I almost feel like, I've never taken those arguments very seriously, but the closer we get to something like real VR, the more that I start think starts to feel more compelling to me. Um, oh yeah, I'm not going to want to play Grand Theft Auto in virtual reality. I don't think. I think it would be. I think it would be too much. Well, you know? I, and and yeah, you may not be alone in that too. There may just be a. I wonder if there'll be just be a smaller market for those games. I, I really think there will because. There, first of all, you will be able to create other experiences that are so much more compelling. Like right now, our gaming is just locked into like a, bun- a a couple different genres, none of which are really that exciting. But once you open up the playing field and also make this astronomically more disturbing, I think you will get a lower percentage of people actually doing the super violent video games. Yeah, it might be more it's very self-correcting. That's an interesting thought is that like, you know, actually experiencing war is not that fun and people, you know, obviously yeah. you'll have some some types of people that will chase after that, but it might be a much smaller fringe group than the, you know, sea of people that buy Grand oh, Theft dude. Auto the moment it comes out. So Yeah. That's where my money is. Uh, yeah, I think that's a pretty strong argument. I could see that happening. So maybe maybe it won't be much of a debate after all. If anyone out there is listening to this, it is something that is on the verge of blowing up, I believe. And you can get involved with it. Any major city, you've got a VR meetup there. Go see what people are working on. There's cool stuff and just check it out because this is the kind of thing that you want to ride this wave. Yeah, I mean, you're kind of inspired me to maybe look into that, actually. Cause a lot yeah, of these where do you things- guys live? Uh, we're in LA, so I'm sure there's stuff here. Oh yeah, uh, VR LA is an awesome group. <laughs> okay, yeah, because uh, th- a lot of these newer things, I'd love to at least try them. So I'll definitely yeah. look into that. Um, is there anything, um, you know, before we we end that you want to share with the listeners about, like where they can reach you or anything you want to promote? Sure, absolutely. So uh, you can find me on Twitter at at Jasnoz J A S N O Z. Uh, if you want to hear about my virtual reality startup, which is kind of a way to do a lot of the things we've been talking about, it's a meeting space to get together. To uh, We're going to have discussions from virtual reality pioneers, people that are building this thing to kind of help you understand it. And then general tech and futurist uh, leaders, think of it as like TED Talks in VR. Head to uh, agoravr.com. It's a teaser site right now, but we are working towards releasing our beta within the next several months. And of course, uh, you can find me on the Futurology podcast, which, of course, I have to say, I would love it if you guys came on for an episode. Uh, We would love to do that. Yeah, Yeah, we'd very much like to do that. Um, Well, let's let's set that up and uh, let's let's wrap it up for now. That 
the company sounds really intriguing. So I'll, I'll check that out and I hope our listeners will also. Yeah, um, we'll put links to all this stuff in the bottom. Thanks very much, Jason. And we'll see you guys in two weeks. Thanks for listening. To subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit reviewthefuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at reviewthefuture.com. Thanks for listening.